G'day folks and welcome back to Giving What We Can, where we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. Today we're sharing our recent Q&A sessions done for Effective Giving Day 2021 with experts in effective giving, ranging from charity evaluators to grant makers and charity founders. So without further ado, let's listen to our expert panelists helping you to give effectively. Okay, hello and welcome everyone to Effective Giving Day 2021. Uh, We are joined by several uh, panelists who are from the organizations who uh, presented some of that content earlier. Uh, We have Michael Plant from the Happier Lives Institute. We have Carolina Serek from Charity Entrepreneurship. We have uh, Johannes Akva from uh, Founders Pledge, Taylor Smith from GiveWell, and I'm Luke Freeman from Giving What We Can, and I'll be hosting the Q&A. We'll get straight into the first uh, question. And we have um, the UK recently cut their international aid budget. Uh, Would we have more impact by trying to reverse that change than by individual small charitable donations? It might work and have a huge impact, or it might make no difference whatsoever. What is the role of SEPTI in giving? So a few things in that. Uh, Yeah, look, influencing aid budgets is a great thing to do. Um, There is a project that I'm uh, aware that uh, one of our members, Sanjay, um, and various other people were working on to uh, try and influence the UK to reverse that decision. Um, I think if you, if you can do that, that is wonderful. Um, and sometimes supporting organisations doing that kind of work uh, is a form of leverage. So, yeah, absolutely, there, there's a role for that. <laughs> it seems very hard to think about how to, how to compare these sorts of things and also what would be the, the most effective places to try and uh, support that. So maybe that's maybe that's a question to try and bring up with your uh, with your politicians come the, come the next election time, in addition to just thinking about what you do with your donation. We noticed that the organizations we start in the policy space are able to make considerable impact with, in potentially more cost-effective way than some of the direct delivery organizations. So we are definitely interested in potentially working more uh, within at least the global health and development policy. Um, we have not uh, started or incubated or in-depth research uh, aid budget, trying to influence aid budget yet, although we will have upcoming report on improving aid quality as well in the future. So we might have a better answer to that question uh, in a in couple of months' time. But in kind of just, just to address this question um, at this point in time, it seems that uh, if, of course, is not the effects of aid budgets are not only depending on the size of the aid, but also the quality of the aid. So that that's kind of another factor that will have to be taken into account. Um, uh, from what it seems from the current analysis, at least the UK aid department, comparably to, to other places, uh, looked pretty good from that perspective. And, and it seems that if able to work on reversing that change, um, the, uh, the impact of that could be potentially large, uh, even if we just look at give well top and send out charities uh, and effects that, that it will have on them. Um, probably Tyler can speak more to that. Uh, but of course, the probability of, of success of something like that is of course much smaller so here i think it's more of a trade-off between a very low potentially very low like lower likelihood of success versus an potentially larger scale impact versus maybe a higher certainty and probability of success um and also pretty still pretty big impact so i think it's kind of like trade-offs on those factors 
So we have a question here for GiveWell that I'll throw to Taylor. It's about, um, it's from Sonia. It says, I've read in Defoe and Bandery's 2019 book and a 2020 IPA paper that the best versions of the graduation approach are likely more effective than cash transfers. Why has GiveWell chosen to prioritize cash transfers above the graduation approach? I guess I'll just say GiveWell, I think like we're as excited about these recent studies um, on the graduation approach as anyone else. Um, I, I do think that like early uh, results of, of from some tests of this approach look really promising. And I, I think basically I would just agree with your statement that like there is some possibility that this turns out to be more cost effective than pure cash transfers. Um, I think it's also the case that there were uh, earlier studies maybe done like in the like 2012 or something that showed like less effects than the more recent ones. So I think the evidence base currently is just um, still a little bit small. Um, but I'll be really excited to see the evidence base expand. Uh, and once, once there's like an evidence base, um, that we think looks really promising, we'd be absolutely interested in like looking into charities that are interested in implementing this approach as we're running it through the GiveWell research process. So, um, yeah, so GiveWell has not, uh, decided in some sort of permanent way to prioritize, you know, pure cash transfers over the graduation approach. Uh, it's an exciting thing that we're interested in watching how it develops. Uh, with an increase in high net worth donors interested in effective giving, what is the role for a smaller donors? I guess uh, quite a few of the uh, viewers would have, would have seen this this debate uh, unfolding over the last few days in on the Effective Altruism Forum. I, say, I, I came into Effective Altruism for the for the altruism, but I'm I'm staying for the gossip. What I think we're seeing here is that with, with the sort of it seems like lots of uh, tech and crypto billionaires uh, putting their money forward, and this raises the question of you know what should what should those of us who just um, have, you know, a little bit of money uh, do with that? Are, are we still useful? And I think the, uh, I think the answer is is yes. Perhaps not quite as as useful as you would have been before if there was less money, obviously. But it's still an enormous amount of impact you can you can have, you know, particularly relative to other sorts of things you, you can do with your time. And if you're thinking about, well, what's the kind of the, you know, do, do small donors have a comparative advantage over large donors? Well. I mean, perhaps it seems like what, what the smaller donors are able to do is, is if you are aware of people in your network who, and you think that their organizations are particularly promising, um, then, uh, then you might be able to, you might sort of be able to come across things and work at a kind of a, a smaller scale, whereas you know, large donors won't, won't consider things which are, um, which are just, you know, unless they kind of meet a certain threshold to be, to be kind of worth their time to analyze. So, the, so for small donors, you should be look, on, on the lookout for, um, uh, smaller opportunities that uh, where you can actually really have a, a meaningful impact that, that otherwise wouldn't get um, uh, where things otherwise wouldn't get funded. Yeah, I, I would very much agree with Michael's, especially last point, uh, where basically smaller donors could have could support smaller projects at the same time, potentially supporting them very early on and helping them develop to uh, develop the programs that need currently as the same level of cost effectiveness as some of the kind of more obvious giving opportunities that other donors otherwise would fund, uh, or even maybe a little bit more cost effective than those, uh, but too small for donors to, first of all, be able to source and then vet and then evaluate uh, in depth. Um, and through supporting small organizations uh, and helping them develop, maybe in the future, those could become organizations that are classifying for funding for some of the bigger donors as well. So potentially your impact is not only the direct impact you have on the small organization, but potentially also developing to the level uh, that other funders could fund them at larger scales. To some, so, so, so to some extent, of course, everyone wants to count their contractual impact to some extent for everything. But I do think small donors in this situation could be, for example, part, or could be responsible also to some extent 
for the larger impact the organization might have in the future, uh, because that organization might not have been developed otherwise, if not for their support early at the early stages. So I do think this is a very kind of place where I see smaller dance could potentially do most good. Maybe just one thing to, to quickly add there is the idea that there's look out of lots of really big donor money and philanthropy led mistakenly to the impression that like everything is already fully funded and that's not true <laughs> uh so if you find uh, an organization you like perhaps some of those that have been mentioned in the, uh, the rather slick video today then uh, like don't assume that they're they're already fully funded go and ask them and, and find out uh you know there's some of them will be but uh, others i think will be able to make really good use of and also some large funders intentionally only fill a certain portion of an organization's budget uh, so that they're not overly reliant on single donors. Taylor, I'm aware that Gibel has been navigating some of this uh, a lot recently as well. Did you want to share where you guys are at? I think what uh, Caroline and Michael have said is like very reasonable approach for ways for small donors to be thinking. Um, but yeah, I will also just echo that the existence of like Large funders and the big increase in money that's been moving into effective altruism does not mean that everything is like fully funded. Um, as the video mentioned, um, GiveWell thinks that uh, we will be maybe able to move a billion dollars a year by about 2025. But we do expect that like a substantial portion of that growth in our money moved is going to remain coming from small donors. That that number is not coming from we think you know, very large donors are going to move in and like take care of all of the funding opportunities we're going to find. Um, GiveWell's focus for the next, you know, several years during that time really is to identify uh, a much larger like amount of room for more funding. We hope to identify lots of really cost-effective giving opportunities uh, for us within global health and development, um, which we think will be an opportunity for small donors to have impact just as they had uh, you know, have in the past. I think it's a really interesting time. I think th like wrestling with the questions, like what is the marginal impact for me as a small donor, given um, what I expect large donors to fund is a really important thing to be thinking about. Uh, but I also think that they're just in, in over the next few years is going to be a lot of room for small donors to contribute and make an impact. So I might also very, also very briefly add that uh, when we are thinking about small donors, of course, it makes sense that we are focusing on the impact of the, the, their donation. But some organizations, there's a new organization that, uh, that we mentioned in the video, High Impact Professionals, where they basically not only try to reach out to people who are doing earning to give or other forms of support for financial organization, but also combine that with potentially bringing some other knowledge and that small donors can bring to the movement and how support charity sectors a little bit as well. So maybe a person who is doing earning to give in a in a hedge fund might at the same time contribute a little bit on um, you know how to make good decisions under under risk or under uncertainty, and kind of the nation being just part of that way they contribute to the charitable sector instead of, uh, but also contributing not only with donation but also kind of the knowledge um, and expertise that they might have developed because of their their career uh, in other sectors. We have a question for charity entrepreneurship. Uh, so, Carolina, um, how do you attract more talents and successful entrepreneurs into the charity sector? Um, in short, we're working on it to figure it out how to do it in the best way. And also to some extent, to what extent kind of entrepreneurs from the for-profit sectors are actually a good fit for non-profit entrepreneurs, because of course there's some overlap uh, that will, that could be fine. For example, let's say uh, thinking in terms of expected value um, is something that will be of course quite common for trade entrepreneurs and for-profit uh, entrepreneurs from, from outside, uh, outside of the sector. Uh, but of course, there will be some meaningful differences between those two groups as well. And basically, try to we are working to determine to what extent this is kind of like actually the best target group. I do still think that, you know, entrepreneur effective altruists 
definitely are you know extremely extremely good uh, good fit for finding effective nonprofit as well. And when it comes to uh, how to attract successful entrepreneurs into into charity sectors, there's I think there's a couple of first of all putting it on a mini as an option. I think you know. When someone is entrepreneurial, the very much, the very default option is to either start a startup for profit startup, or in more recent years, social enterprises have been becoming more more common and popular just because there is kind of that in the general publishing growing uh, growing support of um, social socially motivated uh, startups as well. Um, so, but nonprofit entrepreneurship specifically haven't been spoken much about. So, even just putting in as an option on a mini uh, for people to choose from, I think there's still a lot of untapped potential there. I do think there are some common misconceptions about uh, working charity sectors or nonprofit entrepreneurship, for example, that you do need to have like a personal story in order to start an organization with that field, or you do have to be domain expert from the very start. And that's not something you can gain uh, through through traditional learning, or for example, that NGO, NGO model is not sustainable um, from fundraising perspective. So I think so challenging some of those kind of common misconceptions that for-profit entrepreneurs could have about charity sectors could be a way to kind of uh, attract them to, to this space a little bit as well. And I do think, you know, to some extent showing by example, um, some successful nonprofits that have been started by ex-for-profit entrepreneurs uh, seem to be like a good approach that that is uh, that is just speaking to, to people. And of course, you know, the old boring impact analysis of social enterprises and NGO entrepreneurship and actually showing that it could have really meaningful difference on the outcomes for the beneficiary of the programs if someone is pursuing more like a mixed model where they're both trying to maximize for income or for the revenue and for impact versus what will happen if they just try to maximize for impact. And often those answers will be quite different. Uh, so I do think that if we do find socially motivated individuals, it's a little bit like with promotion of effective giving. Um, there is some work to be done to kind of show the really the difference that it makes um, and then what could be the consequences of it. Uh, we have another question that says, I rarely see political lobbying mentioned as an effective use of time and resources. Why is that? Okay, I think... I mean, I guess there's like lobbying as would not fall under charity, right? But there is advocacy, which is kind of less political, but still um, aimed at influencing uh, policy. And I think there are many EA causes where the organizations that are supported, this is all that we fund. Um, so this is maybe just a misconception, or maybe this is, I guess, given that global health is so heavily focused on, on direct interventions, but um, certainly for climate, we are only funding advocacy at this point, and very consciously so, because... We know the resources of philanthropy are very limited compared to overall societal resource mobilization. So it's like several orders of magnitude of difference. And we also know in climate that kind of the, the resources that are thrown at climate are very poorly allocated and we can actually improve this. So there's actually a huge positive leverage uh, from, from advocacy. So that's kind of how we're thinking about this. But I think also across many of the like long-termist causes that seems to be the dominant theory of change as well, right? Where a lot of the organizations are doing advocacy or lobbying, lobbying some form of lobbying, policy influencing um, as well. The, the groups that 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 have incubated for our program are very much focusing, uh, at least so far, on the advocacy side of pol policy work. Uh, so we, for example, have LEAP, which is Lead Elimination, Expo uh, Lex Exposure Elimination Project, that is working on basically uh, banning lead paint that are used in, and still still is used in many countries and contribute to lead poisoning. That has both kind of health, but also cognitive and developmental effects um, on ch all children and affects their future incomes. Um, Throughout their, their whole life, so that could be an example of an organization that is focused on policy work, and you know, within six years, six months of 
of, of incubation, they were already able to um, not only meet with, with governmental officials in, in Malawi, but actually um, kind of led them to commit to ban lead paint in that country already. And now they're scaling up to uh, multiple other countries, um, piloting programs in Botswana or Madagascar and Sierra Leone and potentially many, many other, um, other countries. Um, uh, the kind of answer why maybe we are speaking less a little bit about political lobbying or political advocacy is at least from in some countries, there is limits on charitable organization and foundation that are that on amount of uh, funding they're able to spend on political activity. So it depends on their country and status of uh, of, of organization. You know, some groups might not be, some, some, some foundation might not be able to spend 5% of their budget on political activity. So that's just kind of like hard cap that they might have. So that's just some limitation and maybe potentially space for smaller donors that are not related to any big foundation yeah. organization to have, have that impact and finding the policy work that other donors would, are not, just not legally able to do. Um, it be, could be a potential way to, to contribute as well. Uh, we've got one for Happy Lives Institute. Um, why do you think wellbeing isn't more widely used as a key metric? Maybe I should sort of explain what the, for those who aren't familiar, what the idea is in the first place and talk about uh, sort of the adoption. Yeah, so, so Luke very helpfully started by saying, well, look, one thing we can all agree matters at least a bit is happiness. Um, and it turns out there's, there's lots of research on, uh, on happiness and well-being. Economists and psychologists have been piling it up over the last few decades. And just in the last couple of decades, it's really uh, started to take root. So many of you have heard of things like um, the World Happiness Report know that the Scandinavians are the most satisfied with their lives. So the idea is that, you know, what we care about is people's lives going well. So why don't we use their self-reports, you know, zero to 10, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? How happy are you throughout your week? Um, and I think that's a, a much better way of getting what actually matters rather than uh, doing what effective altruists have, have been doing and to some extent still are doing, which is you look at things like health, you look at things like wealth, and then you make some kind of you do some kind of guesswork to work, you know, to sort of compare these things to each other. I think we should instead go direct to the source and rely on how well people say their lives are going. So, I mean, it, in terms of why it's not being used uh, more, uh, well, we have had quite a bit of success. So I've been I've been banging this drum for uh, uh, for some years. So um, uh, founders pledge are uh, sympathetic to this, as are charity entrepreneurship, um, as are many kind of people in effective altruism individually. Um, and um, I'm hoping to, at some point, persuade uh, Give Well Open Philanthropy to take this uh, as part of their uh, as part of their thinking as well. So maybe maybe Taylor can can tell me what his doubts are. And as I've been having these sort of you know, people say there are three stages of a good idea. So you know, this is stupid. Um, it's a nice idea, but it'll never work here. And then third, I've been saying it all along. Members of staff at Give Well, there's been sort of theoretical reservations. You know, can you measure happiness? Can you compare people's happiness scores? those have somewhat fallen by the wayside. And I think one, one reservation people do still have is like, well, okay, you know, we have to sort of change our processes. Is this really worth doing? Does this tell us anything new? And I think we, we've now uh, convincingly shown that it does, and it gives us a, a new perspective, which otherwise we would miss. So as the video mentioned, we did this couple of big comparisons of cash transfers to therapy in low-income context. Um, and we found that um, finding people who are, who are, uh, who are depressed and giving them therapy. It's about uh, 12 times more cost effective than just handing out cash transfers, even to people who are very poor. And we did this by looking at the effect on subjective measures of wealth. We had mental health scores, things like happiness and life satisfaction. We aggregated them in some, some very clever and sophisticated way. 
to, to be able to do the comparison. Um, and so we think this this approach is sensible. It can tell us something new because um, you know, the, 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 the approach, because otherwise it wouldn't be obvious how you would compare the um, health and sort of therapy to cash in terms of its impacts on on income or um, or, or sort of standardized health metrics. So we think it helps you to make comparisons in a new way. It does teach you new things. Uh, we've learned that the mental health is, you know, for some people, much better than, than you would have expected. Um, and so we're hoping that that, um, that over the course of time, if people see some more of the evidence, we'll get more people on board with the idea that um, if we want to make lives happier, we should just rely on how happy they say they are and use that instead of our own, our own instinct. After all the attention given to COP26, do you think there are still neglected areas where uh, donors can have significant impact? Yes, there are. Uh, we just have a new report on this. And I should be honest, I was skeptical about this as well, not because of COP26, but because of the Bezos Earth Fund, which kind of single-handedly doubled climate philanthropy. So I was kind of about to quit my job and say, this doesn't make any sense anymore. We should spend our money elsewhere. Um, but we actually looked into this in quite some detail. It's on our new report uh, that we launched today, and there are there remain like huge blind spots. Essentially, there's if you, if you look at how climate philanthropy has changed, there's lots and lots of attention to forests and other natural solutions. There's lots and lots of attention to renewables, and then there's very little attention to almost anything else. And in a way, even though Bezos has kind of doubled climate philanthropy, he's kind of reinforced those traditional biases of uh, climate philanthropy that exist. So, so in a way, there are still like hugely neglected spaces. Um, you just have to kind of dig deeper. So you kind of have to look into the detail. It's not like animal welfare that you can kind of give to a good farm or average farmed animal welfare charity. And this will be like reasonably high impact. That's not true in climate. You have to dig deeper, but then you can find those around neglected technologies, around neglected approaches, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Many people know your top charities, uh, but not many know that, about your incubation grants program. Can you tell us more about that? For sure. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Um, I, I do think it's the case that this is sort of a less foregrounded part of GiveWell's work. So in addition to moving money to our recommended charities, um, GiveWell uh, sometimes makes what are called incubation grants. Uh, just to serve our name for money that we allocate that isn't to our top charities. And these uh, grants serve a number of purposes. So um, one reason we might make an incubation grant is to uh, fund academic research to evaluate a program um, in order to build the evidence base, base for the program or gather evidence that GiveWell would need to see in order to uh, evaluate whether this is a program that could potentially be implemented by a top charity uh, in the future. So sometimes there's a program that like looks promising, but it hasn't been tested um, at a large enough scale, or hasn't been tested uh, using like a, a trial setup that we would find compelling. Um, and so we'll fund that. Uh, another reason that we make incubation grants is something that's been mentioned a couple times during this uh, session already, which is that uh, sometimes there are organizations that are at an early stage of their existence as an organization, uh, and they need funding in order to scale up and sort of demonstrate their, their program at a larger scale. So GiveWell's recommended charities um, tend to be things that have uh, track records of effectiveness and have um, a lot of evidence around the, the fact that their program works. Um, but this means that they are charities that have existed for a while. And sometimes we identify an organization that we think has the potential to become uh, a recommended charity, but it's just new and needs sort of that early seed funding to scale up. So we make uh, grants for that reason as well. 
Um, and then the third uh, sort of category of incubation grants is will fund uh, monitoring and evaluation of existing organizations. So sometimes an organization is like scaled up to the level where uh, where it could potentially be a recommended charity. It's implementing a program that we think is really good, but there isn't necessarily like monitoring data about that charity itself. Um, so this is sometimes for charities that we're considering. And then also we have funded monitoring and evaluation for our existing top charities um, to sort of keep track of, of how their programs are going. Uh, and, and so if you're interested in looking at the list of incubation grants Gibble has made, uh, you can go to our website, just search incubation grants, and you can see the, the sorts of things that that entails. Yeah. Another question open to the floor um, is, what are the best ways you've found to talk about or introduce people to effective giving? On an individual level, I honestly find it's like talking about anything else that you are excited about and, and care about is you're sharing your your personal perspective you're not preaching and trying to convert someone to do something you want to do no one likes to be manipulated um so yeah i will say like i went to this event uh this morning it was about effective giving what's that oh well it turns out you can have a huge impact uh, if you uh think about carefully where you're giving your money. For example, I care about X um, and uh, therefore I'm giving to Y and they do this wonderful thing. Um, it's like making a recommendation for a television show. <laughs> you know, uh, people like to hear the things that uh, you're interested in and that you care about um, and providing real examples in your own life of the things that you are giving to and why you're giving to them and why that makes sense. Um, that is I honestly, hands down, I find the most effective way to talk about it in an interpersonal uh, relationships. So. One thing I find is that I often just feel anxious and awkward. Like if I try and bring this up, I'm the other people are going to feel like I'm like I'm telling them off in some way for not doing that. And um, you know, do you have any do you have any suggestions for people who have a sort of similar sort of uh, um, you know like set of thoughts? Um, I totally understand that anxiety. Also, people were anxious to start talking about anything related to money sometimes. Um, and uh, the thing I can say for that anxiety is um, it often doesn't bear out unless you are talking about it in a way which is do does feel like an attack. Um, if you're talking about it in a way which is just sharing that there are these great opportunities and that it excites you, um, and particularly talking about it as um, like hidden gems, <laughs> things like that, that you found these great things um, that very rarely uh, have I seen that go poorly because people are excited to hear that you've found this thing that you're really interested in um, that is, you know, especially talking about things that are like unfairly neglected, um, that people uh, are you know, typically missing. Um, and then that might be surprising to someone. People generally lean in with curiosity and often you're doing someone a favor is you're, you're sharing with them a way that they can have a huge impact. If I hadn't had people before me who'd looked into this stuff and been willing to share it, I wouldn't have this opportunity to have an impact myself in this way. Well, we'll have uh, one, maybe two uh, questions left. How do you follow up with your recommended charities and make sure the programs you recommend do not cause damage or have negative side effects, um, e.g. bed nets going into rivers or piling up in dumpsters? Yeah, great question. So uh, I guess I'll take the second part of that question first. Um, yeah, looking at sort of negative potential negative externalities of programs, that's something that we 
would typically look into at during like the first stage of our research process. So just for some context, the, the order in which GiveWell's research process typically works is that we start out not by looking at a list of charities, but by looking at programs. Um, for example, BedNet distribution, as, uh, as the asker mentioned, um, and looking at the academic sort of literature about that program. And it is, it's at that stage that we would look into, you know, uh, is the program effective at what it is trying to accomplish, but also are there sort of negative externalities that we want to take into uh, account? Uh, one that sort of got a lot of press is this like bed nets being used for uh, fishing, which maybe is uh, what the question is referencing. Um, but another one about uh, bed nets that we take pretty seriously is um, the development of insecticide resistance in mosquitoes. That's a thing that we think bed nets can potentially cause. Um, and we try to incorporate all of these potential negative effects into our initial like effectiveness analysis of the program, even at the stage before we're looking for specific charities that are implementing the program. Um, yeah, so that, that's a really important part of it. And uh, we, yeah, we just, we incorporate that into our cost effectiveness analysis. And uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes we end up sort of concluding that uh, a potential negative side effect is unlikely, um, but other times we do incorporate like a downward adjustment for the potential for this thing to happen, uh, which will make the program look less, less cost effective. Um, so we definitely don't want to gloss over things like that. Uh, the, so the first part of your question about following up with our, our top charities, uh, we stay in really close communication with all of our recommended charities. Um, we uh, gather like monitoring data from them. Sometimes it's their own collected data. And then sometimes, as I mentioned, when I was talking about incubation grants, we'll actually fund uh, sort of like third party organizations to go in and uh, do monitoring. For example, of bed net distribution, that's one where we had... Um, uh, some recent grants to fund like monitoring of whether bed nets are like hung correctly, whether they're being used correctly two or three years after the fact, after they were distributed. The other way in which we really stay up to date on what our top charities are up to is keeping track of what the top charities would do with the next amount of money that they receive. Um, this is a really important part of GiveWell's research uh, because our maximum impact fund, which is just our name for the money that donors have given to GiveWell to regrant at our uh, discretion to our top charities, uh, we try to regrant that uh, to the top charity or charities from among our recommended charities that have the most cost-effective uh, marginal funding gap sort of like on, on deck for the next thing they would do with, uh, with the next amount of money they received. And we, we try to um, compare the cost-effectiveness of the sort of the next thing each of our top charities would do and make our allocation decisions that way. So we want to keep uh, yeah, really up to date on what our charities' plans are. That's the other type of data that we uh, yeah, collect on an ongoing basis. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, we're uh, running uh, to the end of time or end of the universe. Um, we uh, have an immediately adjacent event that is German speaking, so we need to get off the Zoom so they can use it. Um, but I want to say thank you all for your time today, especially to our partners for providing all of the resources and for the panelists today uh, for sharing such fascinating insights. Um, the links to everything uh, will be available on our blog. I've also just shared a link in the chat that you can use to give feedback. Uh, if you, you can also opt in to receive a free book on effective altruism and, um, and a giving guide, uh, which has everything that today is something that's quite easy to share with friends and family as well. If you're asking about how to share effective giving. Um, thank you all very much. And uh, this will be available online uh, as well as currently just being streamed to the Facebook page. We'll be posting a cut down version uh, on our YouTube as well. Thank you all for your time today and uh, have a good rest of your Giving Tuesday.
Thank you so much for lending me your ears for the duration of this episode. I hope it's helped you to do even more good. Further details on this episode can be found on our blog at givingwhatwecan.org, where you can also find more resources on how to maximize your charitable impact. Don't forget that giving season is a great time to advocate for effective giving, make an end of year donation, or even consider taking a giving pledge. Until next time, keep on doing good. Thank you.